the Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you for tuning in to the Paul Leslie Hour. I'm honored that you're here. This is the home to interviews with some of the most iconic and interesting people around on the topics of arts, entertainment, and culture. With hundreds of interviews in the catalog, the best is yet to come. Help me in my mission. Go to www.thepaulleslie.com and click support the show. Any amount is appreciated. And I thank everyone who has helped. The Luis Berenger interview is the one being featured on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. Luis Berenger is the trumpet diva. She's going to be sharing her story, talking about her professional relationships with people like Nelson Riddle, Harry James, Frank Sinatra Jr., and others, as well as her album, A Trumpeter's Prayer. If you like great music, I sincerely hope you check out this album, A Trumpeter's Prayer. I hope you enjoy listening to an interview with a great performing and recording artist. Louise Berenger is right here on the Paul Leslie Hour. Now let's get into the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our great pleasure to welcome our special guest. Louise Berenger is an international trumpet and recording artist, and it is a great pleasure to have her here. Oh, thank you, Paul. It's our pleasure. Well, were you always a, a musical person? I guess so. My grandfather wrote shows for the Schuberts in, back in the 20s and 30s, and, and he, was, uh, he wrote scripts, he wrote music, and, and he had a lot of friends who were in the music business, so I kind of grew up around a lot of really musical people. He ended up moving to Hollywood in the 40s. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up around musicians, and I always, I mean, from the time I was eight years old, I wanted to be a musician. Why the trumpet? My best friend in the fourth grade, she was going to play the trumpet because her brother had a trumpet in the closet. And I said, well, then I'll play trumpet too. And, and when I picked it up, it just felt like the right instrument to be playing. So I just continued to play it. She ended up dropping it, and, and I continued through uh, high school and college and into a music career. Are there other instruments that you play? No. I play all the trumpets, piccolo trumpet and C trumpet and D trumpet and E flat trumpet, flugelhorn, all that, but all just trumpet. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the trumpet players that have influenced you the most. It's an interesting list for me because growing up in, in L.A., I was really heavily influenced by the studio players there. And, I mean, early on, I, I got a recording called Tootie's Trumpets, which Tootie Camerata, who was a band leader at Disney Studios, he put together an album of all these famous trumpet players from L.A. and a rhythm section, and it included Conrad Gazzo and Pete Condoli and Yuan Racy and, and other wonderful players, and Shorty Chirac, Rachel Scarry. And I fell in love with these players, and, and I ended up studying with Yuan Racy, who was first trumpet at the MGM Studios for many, many years. He played in American in Paris and Singing in the Rain and Chinatown, that beautiful trumpet solo in Chinatown. And I also studied with Pappy Mitchell, who was his predecessor at the MGM Studios. He played in The Wizard of Oz, and he was in the original jazz singer. So, you know, these studio guys were, were a heavy influence on me and, and amazing people, amazing players. And then when I was in high school, I met Bobby Shue, who was at the time not a jazz trumpet player. He was a studio player. 
And he was just at the point where he was saying, I'm going to give up my studio career and, and play jazz. And and he was you know, a heavy influence on me because he introduced me to all the great jazz players. And so, you know, I would say as much as I'm influenced by, you know, Louis Armstrong and Chet Baker, Miles Davis and all the people that we are and Freddie Hubbard, all the people we are all influenced by, the real influences for me are are these L.A. studio players. Tell us a little bit about Pappy Mitchell, who you mentioned just a moment ago. Yeah, Pappy was, I grew up in Irvine, California, and Pappy lived in nearby Corona Del Mar, and he was sort of the local trumpet teacher. And when I was in the ninth grade, my parents said, you know, we got to get you a serious teacher. And and so I went to Pappy, and and he was great. I mean, this is, a, you know, even then I knew that the guy who played in the original jazz singer movie, this this had to be cool, right? And Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. He was the first trumpet in all those movies. And and he was he was tough. He didn't take any any flack. He used to say, "The only excuse for not coming to your lesson is death, your own." <laughs> and wow. And believe me, he, if he would drop you as a student if you didn't show up every week. And I know some of the guys. He used to bop them on the head when they messed up. He didn't do that with me, but he was incredibly informative. He, you know, he taught me about transposition and how to play in difficult keys and stuff like this when I was just in the ninth grade. You know, I called him years later. I was playing a show in Vegas, and I, I called him just to chat, and I hadn't talked to him in years, and I said, you know, I want to thank you. I wouldn't be here playing this show if it wasn't for you because you taught me how to really play, sit down and read a piece of music in any key and really play it. He was a great man, and uh, he was quite elderly when I studied with him in the 1970s, and he died in the 80s. But his books, Mitchell on Trumpet, are still available. And if any of you out there listening to this teach trumpet or just want to get a really good method, there, there's, uh, these books are published, Mitchell on Trumpet, and they're, they're quite extraordinary. And what about Bobby Shue? Tell us about what you learned from Bobby Shue. <laughs> Bobby was, he was just, like I said, going through a transitionary period where he decided he didn't want to be a studio musician quite so much. I, I remember hearing Bobby play on the opening, the main titles for TV shows like the Mary Tyler Moore show and the Bob Newhart show. And, you know, I, it, this, this beautiful trumpet playing and, he said, you know, this is a rat race and it's not very creative and it, it, it's making me a lot of money, but I don't get to, to make the music I want to make. So when I was studying with him, I remember this lesson, him saying, you know, I just really decided I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit. I'm going to turn down work when some people call me to do recording sessions. And, and these things pay a lot of money. There's, there's money and residuals and pension contribution. He said, what, he said I'm going to turn this stuff down and I'm going to uh, start playing jazz and educating. And he really got into doing master classes and workshops and soloing with school bands. And it took a while for him to really, really get into it, but he was developing as a teacher back then. So, you know, what he taught me a lot about was the music business and how it worked and how to, how to get into the music business and how to stay there. I remember we were, we were playing a gig together once and I was really young and he was sitting next to me and I, I stood up and took a solo. I played like eight choruses of the blues and, and I sat down and he said, you were done after two choruses. <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, you know, you're right. <laughs> and, and the, you know, the lesson is when you, when you said what you have to say, shut up, <laughs> sit down and stop. And, I, and so he taught me a lot of things like that moral lessons, you know, about, about music and, and who to listen to and how to listen to music. 
things like that, things that, that were beyond just sitting down and playing exercises. Our special guest is trumpeter Luis Berenger. So tell us, you knew Nelson Riddle? I played in Nelson's band. That was a great, great honor. I played with him for about three years. And when I look back on it, you know, I wish I'd been a little bit older and, and spent a little more time talking to him and things. I, I was playing with the Harry James Orchestra, and he was a big fan of Harry James. So he would come to our gigs that were in the L.A. area. And he and Harry were world buddies. And, and so one day I get called by his contractor, you know, we're doing this, this gig. And I remember it was for Adnan Khashoggi, this billionaire who was involved in the Iran-Contra thing and, and all that stuff. And anyway, we went to his house and played this, this party in his living room. And on the way home on the bus, Nelson walked up to me and he said, I want to thank you for playing with my band. And I was probably, what, 24 years old. And I, I said, Nelson, I would have paid you to play with your band. And we sort of became friends. And then, and then from then on, I, I did a lot of gigs with him, most of his live stuff in L.A. Boy, he was, you know, he was a monster playing his arrangements. It, there's classy writing. There's nothing like it in to play arrangements written by these really true giants of the arranging and composing world. I thought he was a lovely man and an amazing talent. And Harry James, what kind of guy was he? <laughs> Harry was an interesting character. He was super brilliant. Every morning, got on the bus, read the newspaper from cover to cover. When I joined the band, I got on the bus and I, for the first time in Chicago, and we'd flown to Chicago, and I, I sat down in a seat and somebody yelled at me, don't sit there, that's, that's reserved for one of the guys, another one of the trumpet players. And I finally found a seat and it was right across from Harry, which made me nervous. <laughs> and because again, I was just a kid and he didn't say much to me. And then we played the first night. I'll never forget this, Covington, Kentucky. We played in this, in this like nice restaurant bar type of thing. And, and he stood right in front of me and he listened to every note. And when the gig was over, he said, come on, little gal, let me buy you a drink. And I knew that, that I was cool. I knew that you know, everything was good. <laughs> and <laughs> and we, chat, we chatted a little bit. And he was a very uh, articulate, smart guy. He didn't talk to the band much. He kind of kept his distance. I mean, in a way, he, was, he wasn't a sideman anymore. You know, he'd been a leader for so many years. I learned about that later when I became a band leader, that you can't really hang out with the sidemen too much. You, you kind of have to keep a little bit of a distance. But he respected the band. He treated us great. The pay was excellent. And he really respected the players. And, you know, hearing him play every night on the bandstand was, uh, was phenomenal. And being so young, I, again, I wish I'd known, like with Nelson, I wish I'd known to talk to him more. I, I chatted with him a little bit about baseball, and, and he talked about playing baseball with all the other bands, you know, Bunny Berrigan and all these different bands. And it was fascinating stuff, but I, you know, I just didn't spend that much time with him because I, I didn't know to sit down and go, hey, Harry, let's talk about blah, 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 whatever. All I know is that he was like bigger than life, and, and as a player, hardly anybody could touch him. Joining us is Luis Berenger. You have this album, Trumpeter's Prayer. Mm-hmm. I was hoping you can tell us about the title track. Tell us about that piece, Trumpeter's Prayer. Well, this comes back to Tootie Camerata, to whom I made reference a while back. Tootie did this album called Tootie's Trumpets, and 
But I forgot to mention that Manny Klein, who became a dear friend, was also on that album. But there was a song on there called Trumpeter's Prayer, and it was played on the album, on the Tootie's Trumpets album, by the great Conrad Gazzo, phenomenal first trumpet player from Connecticut, but uh, ended up going to Hollywood and playing in the studios there for many years. And it was it's a beautiful recording. 17, 18 years ago, my dad passed away. And I remember just thinking to myself, you know, life's too short. I have to do an album. I just have to do it. I wish I'd done it when he was alive. And, and literally the day after my dad died, I called my friend Frank Sinatra Jr. And I said, Frank, I want to do an album. Will you sing on it? And he said, absolutely. And I said, okay, I got, I'm now I'm starting to put an album together. And, and I decided to record Trumpeter's Prayer and dedicate it to my dad. So I called Tootie Camerata and I said, I want to record your, your song. And, and he said, Oh, great. He said, um, I was living in Connecticut at the time. He said, um, you know, come out to LA and, and you can do it at my recording studio. And, and, uh, he said, I'd, I'd love to be part of this. And as it turned out, he became a great mentor to me and coaching me and, and to giving me ideas. And it was an honor to play his tune. And, you know, he has since passed away too. And I sort of look at that, that tune at Trumpeter's Prayer as a, a great tribute to all the, all the people I've loved in my life who I've lost. I was also hoping you could tell us about the track on there, I Only Want Some, which is a <laughs> Lieber Stoller song. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I, I think the, the most fun thing about this album was I just decided I was going to ask everybody I knew to help me out with this thing. So I called Mike Stoller, who was married to a friend of mine named Corky Hale. And Mike was a friend also and still is. And I said, Mike, give me a tune that has been seldom recorded of yours because his tunes are also famous, you know, stand by me and love potion number nine, which I recorded on my last album and, and on Broadway. I mean, the list goes on and on hound dog anyway. So Mike came up with this tune and he said, you know, I really, really like this tune. And, and the only person that's recorded it, Chris Connor recorded it a zillion years ago. And then John Pizzarelli recorded it. And he said, it's seldom recorded. So I called Frank Jr. and I played him a recording, I think, of John Pizzarelli doing it. And I said, what do you think? Do you want to sing this? And he said, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. I got uh, Tommy Newsom to write an arrangement of it. And voila, here's this really cool tune that people don't really know is a Lieber and Stoller tune. But I think it's fun. I think it's a really fun tune. What you were saying, it, it just I have to know. If you could describe the late Frank Sinatra Jr., Tell us about the guy. What was he like? Oh, Frank was a really dear friend, and I was so shocked to hear of his passing. Frank was, oh boy, where do I start? You know, I started working with him in the early 80s, and I wouldn't say we became friends, but we were, you know, we liked each other, and, you know, hi, how you doing, you know, at the gig, that kind of thing. I played in his band for a long time, and then... I moved away for a while. Then when I moved back to L.A., we became very good friends. And we'd have dinner sometimes three or four times a week often and just hang out and talk. And I remember he, he was engaged and he wanted to talk about that. And, oh, should I get married? And oh, my, and my father did this. My father did that. He always had things to talk about, you know. And, and he was very, very private. And he didn't give his phone number out to anybody. And he, he didn't want people to know what was going on in his personal life. I mean, you can imagine growing up in the Sinatra household being hounded by the press, you know, Nancy became famous and in a way Frank became famous. And when he got kidnapped, when he was with the Dorsey band, 
I think it made him even more fearful of a public life. So he had this very, very private life. And, you know, he had a handful of close friends. And I was, I felt really fortunate to be part of that. He was a very, very understated guy, not super emotional, but a very good musician. You know, he studied arranging with Nelson Riddle and he went to USC and he knew his music. When you played in his band, he knew every note of every chart. You know, his tempos were great. He had, he had a good voice. He really, being in the shadow of Frank Sinatra was difficult, I think, for him. And in a way, he was a tortured soul. But I, I always found him just to be a very big hearted guy very generous, paid the band super well, gave people gifts, you know, very, very big hearted, but also very guarded in a lot of ways. I was shocked when he, he passed away so quickly. I, haven't, I hadn't spoken to him for a few years. He called maybe three or four years ago. My husband answered the phone. It was one or two in the morning. Frank is a night, was a night owl and it's probably 11 o'clock in LA. And he, he says, this is Frank. Is Louise there? And <laughs> My husband says, someone called Frank is on the phone for you. It's like two o'clock in the morning. And he just wanted to check in and say hi. I felt fortunate to be friends with him. And I always felt, this sounds strange. I always felt a little sorry for him because he was, you know, in the shadow of his dad and being in this famous family and sort of almost afraid to, to be vulnerable to the world because the, you know, the world was going to, you know, encroach on him. And so he was always guarded. Do you think he knew how talented he was? Boy, that's an interesting question. He revered his father so much. I think he always knew that he wasn't that. And he he referred to his father as Sinatra. And I think that always being below that level made him feel like maybe he didn't really know how talented he was because he always had something that he had to compare himself to. Mm -hmm. He could sing. I mean, he had chops. And when he conducted for his dad... He was great. He really knew his stuff. He was a studied guy. No one ever said, hey, Frank doesn't take care of business. He took care of business. I wonder, I wonder about that. I, I would say not. I would say he was secure enough to go out there and do it, but I always think he was in that shadow. Those are big shoes to fill. Absolutely. On your album, the, the song he does with you, the Michelle Legrand composition, The Way She Makes Me Feel. Mm, right. What made you pick that one? Well, again, you know, a lot of the tunes on my album were chosen for the same reason. I wanted, I wanted tunes that were by well-known writers that, that weren't necessarily their most famous songs. Like David Raxon gave me a really obscure tune of his to do, and, and uh, David was a good friend. And I wanted to do a Michelle Legrand tune because I love his writing. But the way he makes me feel, which is the original title from, from the movie Yentl, I always thought that was a beautiful song, and it didn't really take beyond the movie. You know, Streisand did it in the movie and not a lot of people recorded that. So I thought, well, that's good. So I, I called Marilyn and Alan Bergman and I said, can I change the lyric? Because you, you need permission to do that, you know, change the title and the lyric from the way he makes me feel to the way she makes me feel because I wanted Frank to sing it. And they said, of course. And so, you know, into the studio we went. Tori Zito wrote this amazing arrangement. And Tori, of course, was Tony Bennett's arranger for many, many years. You know, I feel so fortunate because I was, I was able to just pick up the phone and call people and say, will you, will you write an arrangement for me? Will you write an original tune for me? Whatever. And, and everybody said yes. I think when you're trying to do a project and something that's fun and musical, musicians want to be part of it. On that note, the song Chitlins, that's a really <laughs> cool track. Tell yeah, us isn't about that, fun? that. You knew Steve Allen? 
Yeah, I knew Steve Allen. My my mom knew him. Kind of, she was in the Hollywood scene. She worked at a lot of extra work and films and stuff, and and she hung out with him years and years and years ago. And so I was talking to one of the, the primary arranger on my album is Tom Kubis. He wrote most of the arrangements on my album. And, and Tom said, you should record one of Steve Allen's tunes. He said, here's his phone number, call him. So Steve had an office. He went to work every day and, and wrote songs. He's a very prolific guy. And so I called him and he said, well, come on up. We'll talk about it. And I went up and I said, hey, my mom was Ann Berenger. You guys hung out. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And, and so we, we had this, this connection. And I said, you know, give me a tune. What do you want me to record? And he said, well, this is one of my favorites. And, and it was Chitlins. And it was called Chitlins for the Churin. And I said, Steve, that's like so politically <laughs> incorrect. Can we just call it Chitlins? He says, sure, no problem. And I said, why, why don't you come in the studio and count it off and like, do a little intro on it? Because I thought it would be cool to have Steve Allen on the album. You know? And he, being a, a sort of a, a personality, a celebrity and, and stuff, I thought it would be fun if he spoke a little bit. So he said, okay. So he did this little spiel and he counts off the tune and everything was fine. And then we went to mix the album and my engineer erased it. He erased the spiel and the count off <laughs> and just like, did the accident. This is a guy who worked at Warner Brothers, a great engineer. He says, oh, no, this never happened. So I called Steve. Will you go back in the studio <laughs> and do this again? So we had to redo it. And I have to say he was a good sport about it. But he was thrilled. He was thrilled when anybody did his music. He really liked it when people appreciated his music because as much as he was a humorist and an intellectual and a, this erudite guy who hosted TV shows and things, he wanted people to... to take him seriously as a musician. So I got a big kick out of him. He's a lovely guy. Do you think jazz music is going to survive? <laughs> oh, I don't like that question. I wonder if music's going to survive. I hate to say that, but I think jazz jazz is an interesting genre. Now, I, I play a lot of jazz, but I play a lot of other kinds of music, too. I have a brass quintet called the Revolutionary Brass, and we play classical music and jazz. I think the key is going to be our jazz musicians going to play music that appeals to the public. Because as jazz evolves, it seems like musicians tend to play more and more for themselves and less and less for the audience. And they play more out, they play more, they're trying to play the hippest chord changes and the most notes. And the public doesn't always buy that. They don't always get it. And, you know, there are jazz musicians who will probably yell at me for saying that. And I think it's great that they can do that, that they know the music so well, they can play all that out stuff. And it's almost like musical acrobatics. But the average listener doesn't know how to hear that. And, you know, this is why Miles Davis was such a success, because you listen to Kind of Blue. Why is this the biggest selling jazz album of all time? You listen to it and it's accessible. It's very hip, but it's also very accessible. And I think the fate of jazz will be in the hands of those who perform it. People like Wynton Marsalis, Wynton plays for the public. You know, he plays high quality, super well-executed music, but it's not too weird or crazy or self-serving, and the public eats it up. So I guess it depends on the players, you know, whether jazz will survive. I mean, it will survive on some level. Obviously, everything survives, you know, in some way. There's still people playing Dixieland. You know, you can go take jazz back to its roots, and there's still people performing that, but not as many as there used to be. I don't know. You play a lot of jazz. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 
what you were saying is making me think about all the stuff. Sometimes, I mean, guilty is charged. I play stuff that I realize nobody wants to hear. <laughs> you know, well, like, somebody wants somebody wants to hear it. Like, you know? but sometimes I I wonder if it's just me. <laughs> you know, because yeah, like, I mean, I did a, I did a series a while back of all traditional jazz, and I'm uh-huh. sure, I'm sure it drove some people crazy. Probably Woody Allen would like it. <laughs> but, right, but, absolutely. But how do you know? Like, how do you know when it's okay? In other words, is there like a, a fine line between I'm doing this for myself and I'm doing this for the public? I think you have to read your audience. My husband and I do a, a show. It's a we call it our wine and jazz show. It's he runs a wine tasting. He builds custom wine cellars, and he has a wine tasting show on NPR. His company's called New England Wine Cellars, and they they build these beautiful wine cellars, and he. He runs wine tastings also, and so we put our music together, my music together with his wine tastings, and we do a show where we play jazz from different eras, and he tastes wines that were popular during those different eras. So, and we're also doing it with our brass quintet now. So we're doing classical and jazz with the brass quintet. But so it'll be like a wine, say champagne, popular in the 1920s, bubbly wine, roaring 20s, and I'll play music from the 20s, and then we we go through the the whole, all the eras of jazz. And, you know, if I'm playing something that the audience doesn't respond to that much, I stop that tune early and go on to something else, you know, uh, regardless of what the style is. I, I think musicians need to think about this, like what, when we perform, why are we performing? Because if we're only doing it for ourselves, we should just rehearse at home, you know, have a rehearsal, have your friends over and have a jam session. But if you're playing for the public, you have to play what they want to hear. And yes, you can introduce new things sometimes and sneak them in and see if they like it. But on the whole, you have to play for your audience. And Winton is the best example of that, I think. Dizzy Gillespie was a great example of that. Louis Armstrong, these these guys who were entertainers as well as performers. And they played to the audience. Arturo Sandoval, you know, another one that he plays stuff. He gets the audience rocking and he involves them in the music and I think if you just stand up there and you play a bunch of weird stuff, some people will say, oh, that's really cool. That's wonderful. And then, but most people will say, I don't get it. I don't want to listen to this. Yeah. You know, there's a place for everything. You know, I tell my brass quintet, I say, you know, we, we, we play, we're very commercial and we play all kinds of fun stuff. We get the audience involved, but you know, if we get a gig to play modern music, we'll play modern music. We'll play all kinds of out stuff, but it has to be for a gig that calls for that. In general, when you just get a gig and you're playing for a generic audience, you you have to please the audience. Otherwise, well, why are you performing? Let me just ask you like this. Why do you do what you do? Well, there's this need to say, this is what I am. Listen, what do you think? You know, to the audience, basically. As musicians, we get to show the world what we are inside. And there aren't too many people who get to do that. Even actors, they show themselves as something else, something other than what they are. But we get to actually show what we are. Wow. Very interesting. It's a great, it's a great treat to do that. I don't know. It's, it's kind of fun to do that and see what kind of reaction you get. There's a title that I think this is a really great title. Tell us a little bit about what is forthcoming here. Louise Berenger plays the Great American Groove Book. Right. This is an, an album I just recorded. 
you know, once again, I've asked, I asked a lot of friends to be part of it. Don Braden plays flute and saxophone and, and uh, Gil Paris plays guitar. Marvin Stamm joined me on trumpet. And it's a, a wonderful compilation of Motown music primarily and music from the seventies, mostly the early seventies. And it's everything from Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Lieber and Stoller. I did love, as I mentioned earlier, I did love Potion Number Nine and and it's music that people in their fifties and sixties grew up with. And Tim Womet did all the arrangements. He's a phenomenal trumpet player arranger. He's written albums for Benny King and, and others and and Tim is a good friend, and I play in his band. And so I, when I decided to do this, I said, you want to write these arrangements? He said, yeah, this is great. This is because he, he grew up with this music. It's just a blast. I mean, we do Never Can Say Goodbye. And I mean, all these tunes take me to the river and got to give it up. And I give it now. I, I sell it on gigs. This is sort of a demo because it's not out yet. I need to find a record label for it. It's a fully recorded album. And I've got to find some way to, to get it out there to the world. And I, I give it to friends of mine and I sell it on gigs and, and people without fail say, this is so great. This is my music. I grew up with this music. So it's sort of jazzy versions of those tunes, but they in a way stay true to the Motown roots. It's sort of a jazz rock kind of album, I guess, it's like a fusion album. So the tunes don't sound like I'm trying to make jazz versions of those tunes, but we do solo on them and, they do have sort of a jazz feel quite often, but also they sort of keep the, the original Motown type flavor. So I, it's an album I've wanted to do for years. I had this title in my head, The Great American Groove Book. I thought, how fun. I mean, let's, let me do this. And a couple of years ago, I just said, okay, that we, I have to do this now. So into the studio we went. Very, very open-ended question here. Mm-hmm. If you could say anything to the audience, which you can, <laughs> what would you say to them? Oh, about music? About or anything. just anything? Mm-hmm. You want me to talk about politics? <laughs> Probably not Except a good idea. <laughs> Except politics, no politics or religion. I would say, first of all, if you have any inkling to go out and hear music, buy a ticket and go hear it. Go out. You know, enough of YouTube. And, I mean, all that stuff's great. I think it's great that you can see anything you want on the internet. But, but people are getting so they don't go out as much. And the other thing that's happening is music in schools is disappearing. And, you know, if you have kids or you have any pull with schools or school districts, help promote music, help keep music programs alive in schools, because it's a fact that when kids are involved in the arts, they do better academically. And they also then have an appreciation for the arts that they carry with them. And, you know, we want to keep music alive. Musicians, part of my goal as a musician now and with my brass quintet and with my with this groove book thing when we go out with this band, which eventually we're going to do, is to educate kids as to, you know, this is music. It's fun. Listen to it. It's fabulous. And what I found is you go into the schools and you play music for little kids. You play jazz. You play classical music, whatever it is. And they like it. It's just that they're not, they're not fed it by the media. The media feeds them electronic, I hate to say it, crap. A lot of the music's crap. There's some really good pop music out there, but there's a lot of bad pop music. And that's what they're fed by the media. So, you know, I would say to the world at large, promote the arts, promote quality music, whatever you think is quality no matter what genre, whether it's country western or, or jazz or classical or klezmer music, it doesn't matter. If it's quality, buy the tickets and promote the music because we've got to keep music alive in this world or it's all going to turn into computers 
And that's not human, and it's not good. My last question. Yes, sir. Who is Luis Berenger? <laughs> wow. That's a good question. I don't even know. Do any of us know who we are, really? I'm someone who loves to play music, and I love the camaraderie of my musician friends. I love to be around creative people. My husband's creative. I mean, I told you he builds wine cellars, but he actually has an art degree. He used to make his living as a potter. I'm someone who wants to be immersed in music for a long time to come. And I'm hoping that that immersion as I evolve will be even more educational. I have 22 students now, and I'm finding that teaching is incredibly fulfilling as much as I love to play too. And I do both. I think maybe I'm a teacher, not a school teacher, but a music teacher and a life teacher. You know, I, I try to include life's lessons in the music with my students. Well, thank you very much for this time that you've spent with us. Well, Paul, it's it's a real honor to be on your show, and, and thank you so much for for including me in this. It, it's, it's really a pleasure speaking with you. It's an honor, believe me. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, have a great evening. Thank you, Paul. You too. All right. Thank you. Keep in touch. Take care. Indeed, I will. And you too. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Goodbye.